1. We'll begin in verse 12 this morning. Feel free to use your table of contents. I still have a problem finding this thing in the middle of the Bible, just a short book. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. We began our study last week in Habakkuk in a series that should take us um, about four weeks, taking kind of large chunks at a time. Uh, we began our study and, and we recognized that this prophecy is a little bit different than other prophetic books that we see in the Bible. In this prophetic book, we find a prophet who is not just saying, thus says the Lord, though there is that in this book. We find a prophet who is in dialogue with the Lord. In fact, at the beginning of the book, we find a prophet who is saying, God or Lord, would you speak? He feels as if the Lord has been silent. He feels as if the Lord is not working in a timely way. He, from, from Habakkuk's perspective, God's decisions don't make sense. The beginning of the book is, is a crying out to God, how long, O oh Lord, why, Lord, are you allowing this to happen? Habakkuk finds himself prophesying in the land of Judah where God's people who are supposed to be reflections of God's glory to the world, they have rejected God's law in such a way that Habakkuk says it's like the law of God is paralyzed. It's like it's numbed. It's like it's lost its effectiveness somehow. It is, it, is, it is proving useless in the land because the people are disregarding what God has said. And Habakkuk knows from the scriptures, he knows from Deuteronomy 27 and 28, he knows that God promised that if the people of God rejected his law as they were doing, that God would bring justice. He would bring judgment upon the land. But from Habakkuk's perspective, God's not doing anything. So he raises his complaint to the Lord. And then we saw uh, last week that in verse 5, God answers. And he says, Look among the nations, see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And God goes on to explain that work as a work of judgment through the Chaldeans or through the nation of Babylon coming upon the people of Judah for judgment. And it's like Habakkuk says, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you doing something sounds worse than you doing something, than you not doing something. Habakkuk says, wait a minute, this, this is not the type of answer that I wanted. I mean, I wanted you to slap him on the wrist. I wanted you to bring Israel back to the, what they were supposed to do. And, you know, I, I didn't mean total annihilation by one of the most wicked empires in the world and in history. So now, having heard this response from God, in verse 12, we get Habakkuk's response to God's response. And we get to walk alongside Habakkuk as he processes what God has said he will do through this wicked nation. So I'm going to begin in verse 12 and read all the way to chapter 2, verse 4. And uh, we'll pause and pray for, for God to give us understanding. Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. 
O Lord, you've ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It it hastens to the end. It will not lie. It, it's, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this uh, book inspired by you thousands of years ago. And Father, we, we come to you asking that you would use this text, these sentences, these phrases, these words to convict us of sin, to encourage us to persevere, to stir us in worship. Father, we pray, God, uh, I, I'm not used to taking passages this big <laughs> over the last few years. And so, Father, I pray that I would do it justice and that I would speak your words and we would, we would see plainly what you intend us to walk away with this morning. So, Father, we pray, speak by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So listen to what one commentator says. Um, about this particular passage. He says, the answer to Habakkuk's complaint had opened up a far more frightening scenario than the one he had brought to God in agony of heart. The cure of Babylonian invasion is worse than the illness of Judean sin. Did you catch that? The cure is worse than the sickness. Habakkuk comes to God saying, hey, the Judeans are living in sin. My people are living in sin. I need you to do something about it. And God says, oh, I'm doing something about it. And Habakkuk says, no, don't do that. That is worse than my original problem. You are bringing about something that, 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 that blows Habakkuk's mind. God is going to use a wicked nation, a far more wicked nation than even Judah, and, and he's going to bring judgment on God's people. And Habakkuk's looking at what God is saying he's going to do, and he's, he's, he's struggling 
through this text. And we get to walk along the process by which Habakkuk processes what God has said. So look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? The first thing that Habakkuk does is that he considers what he knows to be true about God. Number one, first step in this process that Habakkuk follows, he, Habakkuk considers what he knows about God. In the form of a rhetorical question, Habakkuk asks, Are you not from everlasting? Habakkuk is not seeking an answer to this question. He knows the answer. Rather, he's making a statement. He's saying, God, you're eternal. Like, you are from everlasting. He's affirming something about God which feels out of step with what God is allowing in the world. God is eternal. Habakkuk acknowledges that God is like no other being in the universe. He does not make decisions like any other being in the universe. He does not respond to time or space or circumstances like any other being in the universe. He is not dependent upon things outside of himself. He's the one and only being whom is from everlasting, who existed from eternity past, who created all that is. And it's almost as if Habakkuk is racking his brain about all of this because he's looking back at God. He's like, okay, God, you've existed since before time began. And with all that time on your hands, could you not come up with a better plan than this? Are you not from everlasting? Oh, God, how could this be your plan. Could you not write a different script? Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? He moves from the eternality of God to the holiness of God. God is holy, and, and, and this word in the scriptures carries with it really two sort of senses. Firstly, that God is perfect in all of his ways. In all that he does, every thought, every action, every attitude, pure perfection, pure holiness. God does not make mistakes. He does not sin. He does not have an evil motive. He is holy. There's a second sense to the word, though, which carries with it a set-apartness. The word means to be set apart. God, the one true God, is set apart from all other things. There is no false God who is like him. He is set apart from uh, he is set apart as different from his creatures. He is set apart as different from his creation. And he is set apart as different from the gods of the imaginations of both the people of Israel and the people of Babylon. God is totally other than anything that we've ever known or experienced. To say that he is holy is to say that he alone is God. I like how A.W. Tozer puts it in his book. He writes... We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. God is, as the angels proclaim in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy. We're out of vocabulary to describe him, so let's just stick with one and say it over and over again. He is sinless, sinless, sinless. He is perfection, perfection, perfection. And, and Habakkuk knows this. This is what God is like, and he is wrestling. I know you're from everlasting. I know you are holy. 
And I know that you're not just a God that's like distantly out there as those things. Notice how Habakkuk utilizes the personal pronouns in the text. Are you not from everlasting? Oh, my God. My Holy One. And then he boldly proclaims, we shall not die. Habakkuk knows that not only is God holy, not only is God eternal, but that he's made particular promises to Habakkuk and to the Israelite people. God has made a covenant with his people. He is in relationship to them. And if God be God, if God be a rock, as he describes, unchangeable, unmoldable, then he must fulfill his promises to his people. God is faithful to his covenant promises. He's not just some distant, eternal, holy God Habakkuk's talking to. He's Habakkuk's God. He was in relationship with this God on the basis of a promise. I mean, Habakkuk knew the scriptures. He knew that God promised Abraham a nation who'd be a blessing to all the families of the world in Genesis chapter 12. He knew he promised King David, a king who would sit on an eternal throne and usher in the kingdom of God, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And from Habakkuk's perspective, the king ain't here yet, and there ain't no blessing going around in this world. You're not done yet with these people. So he boldly says, we shall not die. Whatever it is that you're bringing, I know, based off the promises of God, it can't be total annihilation. There's got to be a sliver of hope here in this message of judgment. Otherwise, you'd be a liar. This cannot be the case. We shall not die. It is impossible for the unchanging God to go back on his promises. So thus, Habakkuk affirms, yes, okay, this God may be ordaining Babylon as judgment. He may be establishing them for reproof. But he cannot be bringing us to total ruin and annihilation. Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them as judgment. You, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Number one, Habakkuk considers what he knows about God. Then he transitions to what he sees as the seeming contradiction. Number two, Habakkuk confronts God with questions. Why does evil prevail? Habakkuk confronts God with questions. Why does evil prevail? Look at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent? When the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. God, I know that you cannot tolerate the wicked. You're so pure, you cannot look upon it without reacting to it. That's why I came to you in the first place, to, to turn your people back to yourself. And now you're telling me that you're going to use the most wicked empire in the world to accomplish your purposes. How could you let that go on? This is a major issue in Habakkuk's mind. This is a matter of the very character of God. The Babylonians were not just a pagan nation caught up in a little sin. And we don't feel this like they would have felt this. 
The suffering that the Babylonians were known for are really unimaginable for us. Consider for a moment what happens in you internally when you think about Nazi Germany or when you see a swastika on a red flag. What happens even in the pit of your stomach even though that was a generation before most of the people in this room. There's something inside of you that recoils because of the evil that that was done under that human regime that, that makes your stomach churn. Now take that feeling and recognize that that's what Habakkuk is hearing. God is raising up a nation capable of that kind of evil and known for that kind of evil to sweep through my country as judgment on my people. The cruelties that characterize the Babylonians would have made the people shudder in the same way that you shudder at the thinking of the German nation years ago. Listen to Habakkuk's description. This is what he does. He goes on to describe what it is that, that Judah will face if they come. Verse 14, he says, you make mankind. Now, the pronouns are interesting here. You, like like talking to God, like if you allow this, God, who's sovereign over all things, you're the one doing this. I mean, there's some stiff language here. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Now, this verse may seem very odd and very insignificant at first, but, but notice what Habakkuk is saying. He's challenging God because he's raising up this nation who is known for treating humans as less than human. As if they were fish of the sea. As if they were crawling things on the earth. They are known for dehumanizing their victims. Sound familiar? For, for casting their victims to be less than. The, the, the very first of God's commands, the very first of God's descriptions of humanity on planet earth is that humanity is made in the image of God and they're to be ruler over the birds and animals and fish and, and creeping things. And what Habakkuk is saying, you're bringing in a people who reverse the very world order. They treat humans as if they're not made in the image of God. They treat them as if they're animals. They reverse the very structure of your entire creation and how they they treat people. They degrade the very humanity of their enemies. I had a, had a rough time uh, uh, on Friday. This passage was very much on my mind, and you'll see why even as we progress into the next verse. But I, I took Owen fishing on Friday, and we stopped at the little Norco um, tackle, and we went to the spillway, and um, we, we paid $3 for uh, a bucket of minnows right? Live minnows. Owen was more concerned about that than catching anything with them, but, but we got minnows. And, and so I, I paid $3 for this bucket of, of live minnows, and then we got on a little kayak, and then we took hooks, and we put them through these little guys, and we had to, had to put them through the tail so that they would stay alive, because you want them to move so that you can catch the fish, because it'll look enticing. And we did all this for our own recreation. Now, that's not a big deal. They're, they're minnows. I mean, it's fishing. That's what you do. You stick it through worms. You stick it through that. Now imagine, though, treating humanity with that same type of cavalier attitude. That is what Habakkuk is saying. 
that the Babylonians do when they roll up into a nation. Look at verse 15, literally verse 15. He brings, speaking of the Babylonian nation now, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his drag net. So he rejoices and is glad. This is not just figurative language here, according to the sources that I was reading. This refers to a historical practice where they would drive hooks through the sensitive lower lips of their captives so that they would be docile as they led them single file back into exile. For those that didn't lead with hooks, they would use large nets as if like a large of nets catching fish, and they would put them into the nets and drag them where they were going. And if these practices were not sick enough, if these practices were not revealing enough of the depths of human evil, Habakkuk comments on their demeanor in the midst of it. He says that they rejoice and are glad in verse 15. These people treat people as less than human and they enjoy it. In fact, they worship it. Verse 16, it says, Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. The Babylonians worship their, their methods and their means of cruelty because by them they live in luxury and eat rich food. They exalt in their sin because it's their sin that is enabling them to live in such prosperity. These evil things are bringing them the life that they wanted, so they rejoice over it and worship it as if it was a God. The wickedness does not seem to be bringing any consequences. Rather, it seems to be purchasing for themselves pretty good lives. And Habakkuk looks at this, this rampant evil, which seems to be facing no consequences, and he's got some questions for the Lord. He sandwiches this description of the Babylonians between two questions. Verse 13, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And then in verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever. In other words, God, are, are you going to let this go on forever? I mean, when are you going to put a stop to the evil of the world? It, it seems to Habakkuk like the evil God is allowing in the world is contradictory to what Habakkuk knows about God's character. And the reality is, is that all of us have had or will have similar moments in our lives where we ask God, how could you? How could you allow this? When we witness or experience the depths of evil in this world, we find ourselves turning to God and saying, how could you allow this? If you're all good and you're all powerful, why have you not stopped this? If you're eternal, holy, and personal, and you've made promises, how could you allow this divorce, this miscarriage, this diagnosis, this car accident, this murder, this betrayal, this sin which plagues me. Habakkuk raises a question that all of us has asked or will ask, and Habakkuk has an option here, as do all of us. 
Habakkuk can reject God because he is angry that evil seems to be prevailing in the world. Or he can set his hope more fully on God because God is the only answer to the evil in the world. I think all of us have that choice, right? So many atheists are atheists because they don't like what the God they don't believe in does or allows. But I think that the evil in the world and the suffering in the world is not meant to drive us away from God. If it drives you away from God, what does it do? It just drives you deeper into an evil world uncontrolled by a gracious and sovereign hand. Your only option is prevailing evil. What it should do is drive you to the God who is the only one who has the power to prevail over the evil, the only one who can be victorious over the evil, the only one who's made a promise that evil will come to an end. So what, so what Habakkuk does, he, he does not turn his back on God. He, he, I want you to see what he does here in verse 1, chapter 2. Listen to what he does. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Number three, Habakkuk resolves to wait on God for answers. In Habakkuk's days, uh, uh, cities would employ watchmen to stand post for hours watching the horizon so they might see whether impending attack was coming or someone coming with a message. It was a lonely job, a wearisome job, standing for hours or sitting for hours upon hours, waiting and watching and waiting and watching. They didn't have cell phones to scroll through anything at the time, so you just there, just you, yourself, and God, and the crickets, and you're watching and watching, and Habakkuk says, I will take this posture before my God. I will sit and wait and look at the horizon for God to do something because that is my only option. He resolves to wait on the Lord to bring clarity to his complaint, resolve to his dilemma, answers to his questions. Habakkuk does not expect immediate response here, nor does he demand it. He simply resolves to wait on the Lord. A symbol of persevering faith. Waiting on the Lord is something that the God commands throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Waiting on the Lord is just faith persevering. It is just faith over a long time. That's what waiting on the Lord is. Anybody can have faith like a flash in the pan, but waiting on the Lord is faith that perseveres. And Habakkuk says, I will trust And I will gaze at the horizon until God gives me an answer. Habakkuk waits. And in Habakkuk's waiting, the Lord answers. Verse 2. And the Lord answered me. Now, that's a sweet phrase. We're not told how long Habakkuk waits. 
All we get is just a transition from verse 1 to verse 2. And the Lord answered me. And that's an important thing to note in the Bible. We get all caught up. We look at Moses and we're thinking, man, Moses had it good. That dude, just God was just shooting stuff from the sky and bringing plagues and parting seas. And I mean, his whole life was just like a Mission Impossible movie. It just never stopped. It was just action, action, action. But what you're seeing are the clips. You're seeing the trailer. You, you, You read in a verse And Moses was a shepherd for 40 years in the wilderness. And then you read the next thing, and you're like, look at the awesome stuff God did. For 40 years, this dude watched sheep. He didn't see burning bushes every day. There was long moments of just waiting. Exiled from his land, in the wilderness, not knowing what God was going to do in his life. And then a burning bush shows up. And the Lord answered me. That was for free. That wasn't in my notes. Verse 2. And the Lord answered me. And the Lord says this. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It it hastens to the day. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. If it will, it will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright with him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So God answers with a vision and a command to write it down. The moment is reminiscent of God's command to Moses to write down the commandments on tablets of stone. Habakkuk is to write this down in a way that makes it plain. You ever on the phone and somebody's like, you ready for that phone number? And you're like searching for stuff like a pen and stuff. Can you imagine? Lord, like write this down. Goodness gracious. (laughs) Okay, write it down. And the command is clear. Make it plain. Make it readable. Make it understandable. The vision is not just for Habakkuk, it is for everyone who reads of the vision after Habakkuk. Hinted, here we are, thousands of years later, reading what has been made plain. In fact, the vision from the Lord is to be proclaimed by others. When God says, so he may run who reads it, he's likely referring to the practice of messengers that would run into the city with a message of of either good news or bad news. So you think of like Isaiah chapter 52 that was quoted by uh, Paul in Romans 10, where Isaiah says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. So, so this vision is to be written down and taken by runners to proclaim it, not only to Habakkuk's generation, but to generations to come. That's why you need to write it down. This is going to outlive you, Habakkuk. Write this sucker down, and people are going to run with this message. They're going to run to proclaim this message. It's coming in the future. Verse 3, still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God emphasizes both the certainty of what he will do, but also the perspective of when it will happen. Like, it's gonna happen, but, but it's got an appointed time that you don't know about. Your job, write it down so you can proclaim this vision I'm giving to you. And just wait. It's coming. It's going to happen happen, take it to the bank. And then the summary of the visionary future is verse 4. Behold, right? Look at it. This this is it. Behold. Here's a summary, summary statement here. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. You're like, okay, 
is that it? That's the answer? I mean, we got more of Habakkuk to explore, but what, what is this response to all my questions about the evil in the world? Number four, uh, truth number four, God's answer to evil is a promise. The righteous shall live by faith. God does not answer all of Habakkuk's whys right here, or hows. He answers Habakkuk with a promise. Behold, God says. And he gives two categories of people. First category is one whose soul is puffed up. This is the proud person. Both the Babylonians and the Israelites embodied this description. The Israelites had cast aside God's law as unnecessary. Rather than serve one another, they were taking advantage of one another. Rather than protecting one another, they're doing violence to one another. The Babylonians, as we saw last week, were people whose justice and dignity came from themselves. In other words, they were their own authority. They made up their own rules. They worshipped their own wickedness and sought only to live in luxuries. And God summarizes all of that evil. All the depths of that evil that Habakkuk just described, God describes it as a puffed up soul. He describes it in terminology of pride. People who think they have no need for God, no need for his law, no need for his rule in their lives. There's those people. And then there's another category, and this is the promise. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now there's some debate as to whether God's referring to his own faithfulness here or the faith of God's people. But, but in contrast, the point is clear. The Judeans and Babylonians are pridefully self-reliant. But in the end, those who live, those who will be standing at the end of the days will be those who humbly trusted their God and Savior, who humbly trusted not their own righteousness, not their own way, not their own rules, but the way, the righteousness, the rules of God Almighty. This is the vision that waits the appointed time. This is God's answer to the complaint. This is what we'll have to wait for. God will save the righteous by their trust of God, by their faith in a faithful God. Only those who forsook the pride of their heart and trust God alone will live. Everyone else will be given over to death. Habakkuk's question is, God, why does it seem like evil is prevailing? And God's answer is simply, trust me, it won't always. There's coming a day where righteousness will prevail over evil and the only ones left living will be those who trusted me. And all of that should sound very familiar to you. Because in the book of Romans, the very first Old Testament text that Paul quotes to describe the good news of Jesus is this promise from God in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Paul looks back at Habakkuk and looks back at Habakkuk's struggle and looks at God's promise to Habakkuk and he reads that and he, he understands Jesus to be the only way 
that this verse comes to its accomplishment. Listen to Romans 1, chapter 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That is the good news. That is the message that he's running with. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, that is to God's people, and also to the Greek. That's Babylonians, Chaldeans, all the other nations. I got good news of salvation for both ends of the spectrum here. Verse 17, in this message, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Listen, like Habakkuk, we live in a world where evil seems to prevail. Just look around. Like Habakkuk, we find ourselves waiting and watching for God to answer our most difficult questions about pain and suffering, specifically personal pain and suffering, ones we've experienced. Like Habakkuk, we often find ourselves crying out, how long? We often find ourselves asking, why? Like Habakkuk, we're giving a, we are given a promise, one that should sustain us. The righteous shall live by faith. But unlike Habakkuk, we understand exactly how God accomplished this. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, who took the most ultimate step of humility to live a life that was not puffed up in soul, though he had every right, (laughs) stepped into human flesh, lived a life of humility to the point of death on a cross. And as a human, Jesus endures the fullness of the evil of the world and the fullness of God's wrath on evil, the unrighteousness of the world, and all its consequences come crashing down on the eternal Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, who was the only righteous human being ever to live. The wrath of God, including the full curse of death, came down upon Jesus. And for three days, his body lays in the tomb, and it appears, to use the language of Habakkuk, that the wickedness has swallowed up the righteous. And on the third day, righteousness triumphed. The most powerful enemy in the history of the universe, death itself, was overcame by the righteous one. The greatest act of humility in all time breaks way to the highest place of exaltation for eternity. Jesus makes eternal life possible. He makes righteousness receivable. And we receive it through faith. That is, emptying ourselves of self-reliance and casting ourselves upon what Jesus did for us in our place, not what we can do for him. So that means that no matter the depth of our sin, no matter the intensity of our suffering, no matter how long it seems to last, we have a promise that has been validated by a resurrected man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom we still celebrate that he is alive today 2,000 years later. So we can say, we shall not die. Just as Jesus said, though you shall die, yet you shall live. Or I'm the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. We shall live eternally by faith. And as we stop trusting ourselves, our ability to figure things out, and we trust the Lord. This is what it means to be justified right in the eyes of God. We trust his righteousness and not our own. But this is also just how we survive in the present life. 
we know what awaits us if we believe, right? I mean, Romans 8, 18, the, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. We live in this already but not yet tension. Yes, Jesus has come, lived, died, rose again, but we still find ourselves in this evil world waiting for the day that he returns and makes it right. And so Habakkuk's or God's words to Habakkuk reign still true to us today. Habakkuk 2.3, you, you can take this verse and apply it because we are waiting very much in the same way, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. One day, every ounce of evil and suffering will be done away with. And only the righteous by faith will be left to live eternally in the presence of their God. Habakkuk considers what he knows about God. He confronts God with the questions, why does evil prevail? He resolves to wait on God for answers, and God answer, God's answer to evil is a promise that the righteous shall live by faith. Now allow me to close um, this morning with a few takeaways. I'm going to roll through these quickly. Four, four takeaways from uh, this morning's sermon. Number, number one, regularly rehearse what you know to be true about God. Regularly rehearse what you know to be true about God. This is what the biblical authors did. You look through the Psalms and you find psalms of both thanksgiving and lament, what you find are people reminding themselves of what they know to be true about God, despite what is happening in the world around them. Sometimes the most important thing you can do is to pause and consider the unchanging realities of the only unchangeable rock, which is your Lord. We should be striving to do this not only when we get the phone call that something terrible has happened, but we should be striving as God's people to do this every single day. When we come to God's Word to meditate on it day and night, one of the reasons we come to God's Word is we come asking the question, Lord, show me something true about you today that I am quick to forget. I mean, that's, that's the nature of our quiet times. That's the nature of our daily devotional life is not just to learn something new, it's to remind you of something very old that you so quickly forget. Right? So, so regularly rehearse what you know to be true about God. Takeaway number two. Go to God with your struggles. Now I want you to notice that, that God doesn't seem to rebuke Habakkuk in all of this. I mean, there's some pretty bold moments where I'm like, whoo, did you just say that to the Lord? You know, like, like Habakkuk just said this to God. And, and God doesn't seem to, to react or to respond negatively in this case. God seems to invite the conversation. He welcomes the wrestling and the struggling. And let me just say this, God's not afraid of your questions. We Christians should not be afraid of the questions of unbelievers. His shoulders are broad enough to handle the questions and to provide the answers where there are answers to be provided. God is not afraid of that. And too many times when we're, when we're facing things, we go to everyone else in the world for advice to face a situation. 
I mean, too many times we talk and we talk and we talk and we even talk about praying about something, but in all of our talking, we do very little praying. Do you realize that you talk about praying more than you actually pray? It's, it's, it's true. You know how many times you say, oh, I'm praying for you. No, you're not. Do not lie. Pray if you say that you're praying. Say, I'm really busy right now. I'm sorry. I can't pray for you. And then maybe you realize you're not that busy and you can pray. We, we should be the kind of people who, who yes, we go to, to our brothers and sisters for counsel. Yes, we wrestle with them. We need that. The church is a gift of the Lord. But, but goodness gracious, may we also just go to the Lord with things. And, 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 and go ahead and tell him things that are in our head. He knows they're there already. Really relieves the pressure <laughs> of hiding things from him because nothing's hidden. So speak to the Lord. There's a, there's a quote uh, in, the, in one of the commentaries I was reading. He says, Yahweh's response to those who inquire of him never are automatic. We have been imperce- imperceptibly influenced by our push-button world. We can easily regard prayer as a way to get what we want rather than a way in which our covenant relationship is expressed in watching and waiting. And this leads me to takeaway number three, pray for patience. Like Habakkuk, we are watchmen on the wall waiting for what God will do. We are awaiting an appointed time. Wait on the Lord. Pray for patience. Don't, that, that saying, oh, be careful, don't pray with patience. You'll get an opportunity to use it. You already have opportunities to use it. Pray for it. Pray for God to give you faithful, long-suffering patience to trust Him. And lastly, takeaway number four, embrace faith as the way of life. Now, I say this to non-Christians in the room because this is literally the only way to life eternal. You must stop trusting yourselves and trust the Lord Jesus today, right now. I pray you would. But this is not just the doorway into salvation, although it is to to cast yourself upon the Lord and trust Him. Uh, This is also how we live our lives. Faith, faith Faith is patience and humility persevering through your life. Some of you continue in disobedience because you are prideful, because you have a puffed-up soul which refuses to let go of the control you think you have, which you don't actually have. Some of you continue in disobedience because you're too prideful to humble yourself to particular commands, like, like living in real community with other people who, who make you feel vulnerable who know you for who you are, who see that you're messed up. So you reject commands to to put yourselves into the one another's of the New Testament church. You, You avoid things like baptism or church membership or a prayer service or a community group because Sunday morning services are easy. You just show up and you watch what happens, and then you go back home. It's, it's kind of like watching TV. I mean, you just come up, you show up, you watch, you do the thing, and you go home. So you avoid other events, like a prayer service, where, some, where you have to be seen. It's easy to come and watch something. It's hard to look at a brother in the face and say, I struggle with lust. Or to hear from him how he's burdened by a particular sin or suffering. And then to carry that. 
A lot of us don't experience the richness of the church because we're puffed up in soul. We say, other people need that, but I don't need that. So I will continue on in my life. And we, we rob ourselves of what humble, faithful, walking with the Lord really looks like. Faith is not only the way to be saved, it's the way of life. And we grow day by day in humble believing. We, we as Christians want to reject any ounce of self-reliance that clings to us. We want to become fully reliant upon the Lord and His gifts. Especially when it seems like God's moving too slowly or in ways that we don't understand. So four takeaways. Rehearse what you know to be true about God. Go to God with struggles and sorrows. Pray for patience. Embrace faith as the way of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Habakkuk. We thank you even more for Jesus who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, who, who prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours will be done. Thank you, God, for, for Jesus doing what I would have not done, what I could never do. And so, Father, we come to you uh, this morning, and we just proclaim, Lord, we need you. We confess that you are our righteousness. You are a defense against the evils of the world, the evils of our own heart, and we plead, God, help us trust you. Even with things we don't understand, can't comprehend, help us to trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.